Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It is wonderful to have you on the show today. We're going to talk about the giants of Genesis chapter 6. I um, hope that you've had a wonderful week. This is Fishing for Men with Mac, and this is episode 75, Friday, the 18th of February. If you are a Christian, you've read the Bible, you've come across Genesis chapter 6. Today will be a good day to explore some of that and maybe give you a little bit of a better understanding. And if you have never read Genesis chapter 6, but you've heard about stories in the Bible that just doesn't make sense to you and makes you feel like everything in the Bible is just, you know, fairy tale nonsense, then this will be a good podcast for you as well. And with with the, on, on that tone, let me just let me just start there. Genesis chapter 6 does talk about giants. Other places in the Bible, it does talk about giants. And for those who use that as criticism of the Christian faith, saying that there's all kinds of uh, funny things going on in the Bible that cannot be real, then... Um, yeah, this is going to be a good podcast for you. If you go into Google, I've got Google open right here in front of me. Um, you will find you can just you can just Google in giants, uh, the bones of giants discovered, and you will find out that they've found um, skeletons of giants in the Americas. They found in Ecuador. They found them in Greece. They found uh, the skeletons of giants in ancient Rome. Um, there's even uh, an interesting article about the giant of giant of Castelno. They've found a humerus and a tibia bone of uh, this giant, and they suggest that he was 11 foot 6 inches tall. That's 3.5 meters. Now, you have probably seen on Facebook that there's been this uh, these photos going around of alleged um, giant's bones that have been discovered somewhere. Those are all photoshopped, by the way. That is not that is not real. But it doesn't change the fact that there really has been giants on the planet. Not 100 feet tall, um, but, you know, like 11 feet tall, three and three and a half meters tall. Uh, there's Goliath in the Bible. If you've read about the story of uh, David and Goliath, um, he, Goliath was, I think, nine, nine, over nine foot tall, nine and a half foot tall. That, that's a big cat. That's a big man. And I mean, you can go read up the tallest man in the world today. So there are still, you know, here and there giants. And so there's nothing irrational in the Bible claiming that there is uh, that there were giants. There's nothing irrational about that. I mean, it's been discovered that there were giants in the past, and even still today, there are some people that we, we could consider giants. I had a guy stop here by my house last night, and he's sitting in the car. And when he climbed out, I was like, "Goodness gracious, you didn't look that tall when you were sitting in your car." He's a massive man. He's probably over seven foot tall. So in any case, um, I've been doing. A series of lessons. I did it with the, the church in the States and I did it um, also currently busy doing it here with the church here uh, in Durban. And so I thought, let me let me also share some of these ideas on the podcast, because uh, some people, uh, lo- many Christians have questions uh, about this specific text. And so the study is called Strange Scriptures, Bad Interpretations. And I'm just looking at some of the awkward scriptures in the Bible and sort of unpacking them and giving us a more reasonable understanding of what is taking place there. And the reason why I thought to do it on the podcast is because there are many listeners who are not uh, who do not 
um, log into these Bible studies. And so they haven't heard this study, but they might have these questions. And then there are many people who are not Christians and they've grappled with these texts and they've tried to understand what is going on there. And in actual fact, it's made them believe that the Bible is a fairy tale. And so I hope to provide a little bit of clarity on it. And so we've got to remember that Genesis chapter 6, it's an anti-diluvian text. And what that means is that it was, it's, it's about a time that took place before the flood. Okay, and this world of Genesis, the first 12 chapters of Genesis, they're often hard to understand because it deals with the most ancient times of civilization. And so when we're reading those texts, we need to remember that it's a time totally different than our time and a people totally different from our time. And so there's a great distance between us and then, which makes the, the text seem very obscure. But don't worry, you know, if God put it in the Bible, if it's there, there's a reason and there's the possibility of getting some clarity from it. Um, so without further ado, uh, let's read Genesis chapter six. I'm going to read it for you. This is what it says. And if you've never read it, uh, prepare yourself to be shocked. It says this, when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever for he is mortal his days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. Now, what people have done with this text is, is that they've given it a bad interpretation. The word Nephilim is in there, right? And so this is the bad interpretation that people give of the text. This is what they say. In the days of Noah... Male angels married female humans and had children with them. And these children were giants and they were called the Nephilim. It sounds like a it, it sounds like a story out of a horror movie or something like a sci-fi movie, right? It makes you imagine all kinds of funny things. So that's the interpretation that some people give out there. Okay, so angels came down from heaven. Okay, they slept with uh, female humans, had children by them. And those children, they were giants. And they were called the Nephilim. Now, let me let me tell you why some people would believe that. Uh, why some people favor that interpretation. Well, first of all, because of some biblical passages. There are some other passages in the Bible. In 2 Peter 2 verse 4, for example, the text says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. So clearly some angels sinned, right? And God sort of sent them to hell. Jude verse 6 says something similar. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their home. These he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And so these texts clearly say that sometime in the past a group of angels sinned. Some people then say, okay, well, what, what is the sin? Well, the sin that these angels committed is that they, they married human women and had children with them. Therefore, these texts, according to them, refer to Genesis chapter 6. But my critique of that would be, uh, yes, angels sinned. But to say that the sin of those angels was sex with humans is a stretch. And that's not, that's not what the text says. Um, in actual fact, if you read the text in Peter, it tells you exactly what the sin was. They abandoned their home. 
they abandoned heaven. They rebelled against God. They rebelled with Satan against God. That is the ultimate sin that a group of angels had committed against God. They rebelled against him and there was some type of a war in heaven and Michael the archangel kicked them kicked them out of heaven. And that's a, another story for another day. So that's sort of the, the argument that they put forward, which I think doesn't hold water um, because nowhere does the text say that the sin they committed was sex with humans. But then there are also, and this is predominantly where the support for this interpretation comes from, there's the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch. Now, the book of Enoch is not a book in the Bible. It's not a canonical book. Uh, Christians don't believe that it was inspired of God. It wasn't written by one of the apostles. And, and so it was a book written somewhere in the 2nd or the 3rd century before Christ. Okay? Some believe the book was written by Enoch, one of the two men who did not die in the Bible. Okay, you read about him early on in Genesis. Um, he was the great grandfather of Noah. It is this book that talks about the watchers. Um, and these watchers, they were fallen angels who fathered angel-human hybrids called the Nephilim. Some hold this book can be trusted because Jude uses quotes from Enoch. And Jude is in the Bible. So Enoch is not in the Bible, but, but Jude is. Jude 14 verse 15 says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming uh, with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so the argument is this. If an inspired author of the New Testament, which is Jude, trusted the book of Enoch, then surely we can too. But that's just a bad argument. Because all scholars agree that the book of Enoch is basically pseudepigrapha. In other words, that's a funny word, but it's, it's an ancient writing that falsely claimed authorship by a biblical character. In other words, somebody wrote a book and said this was written by Enoch, but it wasn't written by Enoch. The Enoch of the Bible did not write the book of Enoch. The book mentions Daniel, Isaiah, Mount Sinai, and these are things Enoch did not know about in his time. Enoch lived thousands of years before Daniel and Isaiah and Mount Sinai. Okay, so he definitely did not write that book. Okay, there are two more reasons why Enoch is to be rejected. First of all, Jesus did not accept the book of Enoch. When he quotes what scripture is, when Jesus quotes what scripture is, he says it is the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and the writings, the Proverbs, the Psalms, etc., Ecclesiastes. Now, Jesus says that in Luke 24, 44. So when Jesus quotes what scripture is, he could have said, yes, and the book of Enoch, but he doesn't include the book of Enoch. And we know for a fact um, that these books, therefore, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, they do not include Enoch. Secondly, most of the content of Enoch contradicts the New Testament. For example, it suggests that Enoch himself is the Messiah and not Jesus. Well, what do we make of the quotation by Jude then? Well, very simply, first of all, Jude doesn't claim to support the whole book of Enoch, um, but simply quotes a saying of Enoch, which might very well have been a legit quote made by Enoch that was carried on through oral tradition and later added into the actual book of Enoch. Secondly, biblical authors often quoted material and people from outside the canon of scripture to connect with their audience for various reasons. 
Uh, here's some examples. Paul quoted Epimenides in Titus 1 verse 12. Does it mean that Epimenides was an inspired author? No, he wasn't. And uh, Paul also quoted Greek poets in Acts chapter 20 verse 28. Does it mean that those Greek poets, that they were inspired and that, we, they, that they, they sh their writing should be part of Scripture? No. Just because Jude mentioned a quote of Enoch doesn't mean the whole book of Enoch is inspired. So we've got to be careful to use the book of Enoch to interpret the Bible. Then there's a third and perhaps the most legitimate um, <laughs> evidence that it is possible that angels intermarried here with humans in Genesis chapter 6. And it's the words sons of God. The Hebrew wording for sons of God in the Old Testament is repeated three times in the book of Job. So this idea of sons of God. Remember the text said the sons of God married the daughters of men. It doesn't say angels, it says sons of God. So we've got to look at other places in the Old Testament where sons of God are used. And we find them just in three places. Job 1 verse 6, Job 2 verse 1, Job 38 verse 7. And every single time it refers to angels. And so there's sort of a slam dunk for their argument. But I'd like to make a critique of that. I could make a few objections. Hosea chapter 1 verse 10 is a prophecy that future Christians will be called sons of God. The New Testament calls us Christians sons of God in numerous places. The, that's the first thing I would say. The proper Hebrew word for angel is mentioned more than 104 times in the Old Testament. It is even used in Genesis a number of times. Now why would Moses not use it in this instance? It was so easy for him just to say, the angels came down and they slept with humans and they had children. No, he says the sons of God. So what is really going on here? Now, I know there's a lot of detail that has already been shared now, and you probably lost at this point. Just hang on for a second, and it's going to become much more relevant as we move on in just a moment's time. So there are two questions that need to be answered. Did angels sleep with humans? That's the first question that we need to unpack based on Genesis chapter 6. No, angels did not sleep with humans. Why do I say so? Now, I could provide a few reasons, but here are three scriptures. First of all, Matthew 22 verse 30 says, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now this text is repeated in Mark and Luke by Jesus. If you go look at the context, it becomes quite clear what is going on. Humans have been created male and female to procreate and to populate the earth. Angels have not. They don't procreate and populate. It is not part of their existence. Angels do not marry and they don't have sexuality. Okay, <laughs> that's from the words of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 39 to 50. I'm not going to read the whole text, but simply point out some ideas. You can go read that in your own time. The argument there is about the bodies that we will receive when we get resurrected. We're going to die. We're going to be resurrected. What bodies are we going to have? The text says that we're going to have heavenly bodies. And not earthly bodies. Heavenly bodies and earthly bodies are not the same. So if heaven's bodies are different than earth's bodies, how can they procreate? Secondly, natural and spiritual bodies are different. Angels have spiritual bodies, not physical bodies. We're going to talk about that now. Thirdly, those in heaven don't have the same bodies as those on earth. Fourthly, flesh and blood are not in the kingdom of God. Angels don't have flesh and blood. They don't have the same genes and bodies as us. The third scripture is Hebrews 1 verse 14. The text says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The word spirit here 
means a current of air or breath. An angel is not a physical being. A demon is a spiritual being that can enter a physical being. They can appear as something physical, as we see many times in the Bible, but that is not what they are. So, angels sleeping with humans, not happening. Not according to the Bible. Secondly, were the Nephilim hybrid angel-humans? In other words, were they a mixture between angels and humans? No, they were not. Two reasons. Let's read the text again. I'm going to read it slowly and see if you can catch it. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. Now, I hope you got that. You will see that the Nephilim was already on the earth when the intermarriage took place between, between the sons of God and the daughters of men. They were already there. In other words, before this sexual encounter between the sons of God and the daughters of men took place, the Nephilim were already de there. Do you see how easy it is to misread a text? So that's the one problem. Okay, The Nephilim, they were not hybrid angel humans. The second problem is found in Numbers chapter 13 verse 33. When the spies came back from the promised land, they said the following to, to Moses, We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. Whoa. What do you see here? Many years later, hundreds of years later, the Nephilim, these hybrid angel human, whatever they were, according to this interpretation, they were in the promised land of Canaan. Hey, but I thought the flood wiped them out, wiped all of them out. That's the way I understand it. What do you see here? Ladies and gentlemen, the Nephilim is just a word for giants. Goliath was a giant. They've got nothing to do with angels marrying with humans. And when I say giant, I'm not saying 100 feet tall, but more like 8 or 9 feet tall like Goliath. Now think with me. If God killed all the Nephilim in the flood, banished the angels who slept with the women, how come there were still Nephilim hundreds of years after the flood? You see, the bad interpretation doesn't work with Numbers 13.33. The Nephilim in Canaan, according to Numbers 13.33, were not the descendants of angels and humans. They were the descendants of Anak. Therefore, Nephilim, in Genesis chapter 6, were also abnormally large giants or tyrants. But they were the children of humans, not the children of angels and humans. We are, so so we've, we've basically debunked now what people say out there. Some people say, happens in Genesis chapter 6. Let me provide to you a better interpretation. We must remember that the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. If we want to understand what is happening in Genesis chapter 6, we need, we need to look at the pretext and the po post-text in order to arrive at an accurate context. Whenever you don't understand something you're reading in the Bible, go read two chapters earlier, start two chapters earlier, and then read on. Now let's do that. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain... Remember, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel, right? And Cain killed Abel, right? You remember that? In Genesis chapter 4, Cain is cursed by God for killing his brother. And he's banished with a mark. 
I'm going to read to you Genesis chapter 4 verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Do you pick this up? Cain went out from the Lord's presence. What does that mean? It means that God was not with him and that he was not with God. He was Godless. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 17 to 24, we see that Cain develops a, a, a genealogy. He has descendants. He marries. And then develops the godless nation of Cain by genealogy. We skip over to Genesis chapter 4, verse 25 to 26. Now remember, Cain had now been cast away. He's not with his mom and dad and he's not with God. He's living in another place where God isn't. He's outside of the Lord's presence. But Adam and Eve, they're still here next to the garden. They've been kicked out of the garden, but they also want another child. And so God blesses them with another child sort of in the place of Abel. And his name is Seth. I'm going to read to you the text. Genesis 4.26 Adam lay with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God granted me another child in place of Abel. And since Cain killed him, Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. And after this, we see throughout the whole of chapter 5, the descendants of those who call upon the name of the Lord. So what do we have? And I hope you're starting to get the picture here. It is clear in Genesis 4 and 5 that there are two different groups of people on the earth at this time living in different places. The one group is godless. They live in Nod. They live outside of the presence of God. They are the children of Cain who are cursed by God. The other group lives outside Eden. They are godly. God is with them. They worship God and they are the children of Seth. Do you see? Two different populations. Two different groups of people living in two different places. One having a God, the other having no God. Now we step into chapter 6. Now reread the text with that in mind. I'm going to read it a third time. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, who are those? They saw that the daughters of men, who are those, were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The sons of God refers to the sons of Seth, the godly people. Those who walk with God and worship Him, the daughters of men, refer to the daughters of Cain, those who live outside of God's presence. Genesis chapter 6 verse 1 to 4 is a section of writing that is trying to explain what the moral conditions were like before the flood. It is trying to sketch context as to how the human race became so exceedingly sinful that God wanted to totally destroy them. The author is saying at least two things about those days before the flood, the things that led to the flood. Firstly, what were those days like? And I would like you to picture this because, you know, we look at the flood and there's a lot of criticism from people um, that don't believe in God. And they say, how can God make the whole human race just um, die through water? And this text is explaining to us what was going on. Firstly, the, there were Nephilim in those days. The word Nephilim can mean tyrant or bully or giant as it's translated in numbers. 
Why mention this? Why mention that there were a bunch of bullies on the earth? These people were obviously associated with warfare, aggression, murder and hate. This is associated with wickedness. The type of world before the flood was vile, violent and fearful. Tyrants and bullies were running around rampant. That's why the text says further on, God couldn't handle the wickedness of the planet at that stage. Imagine the worst wickedness you imagine, that God only finds eight righteous people on the whole planet. So that's the first thing. There were Nephilim in those days before the flood. And secondly, <coughs> even God's people lost their distinctness, entered the godless world and married the godless. Even before Abraham, God had a distinct people. Even before the Israelites and the church, God always had a distinct people. Those days were so evil that even the godly started blending with the ungodly. Even the godly were overtaken by lust and sex. Even the godly left their place, the presence of God, and intermarried with the daughters of Cain, who has been cursed by God. And even today this is happening, ladies and gentlemen, as the church is currently mingling with the world. What can we learn from all of this? Let me make some conclusions here. If you are lenient on your lust, it will overrule your love for God. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, the text says, and then they chose some and married them. It's interesting how similar this is to the days before the exile and the days before Ezra. The most potent sin we can commit is to pollute what God has made holy. The question is, how did they end up there? How did God's people end up intermarrying with Cain's children. I'm reminded of John writing, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he proceeds to tell us what this love for the world entails. One of them stands out. It's the lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes. That's in 1 John 2, 15-16. Jesus condemned even looking at a woman lustfully. If we look through the eyes of these New Testament scriptures back to the flood days, it makes sense why Jesus and John were so, so stringent. It was the lust of the eyes that caused the first people of God to falter. What is the issue with it? You see, this is the issue. The desire of love is to give. The desire of lust is to get. To take. Lust would take the body and discard the soul. Lust says, take the body, throw away your soul. The problem the sons of God has had was that they had moved from being servants of God to become servants of self, from lovers of souls to lusters of flesh. And it's easy to get there. If you let your flesh go where it wants to go, you will soon deny God. I mean, let your eating habits go for a day or two and see what happens. You see, we have to identify our lusts and we have to control them or they will control us and God will destroy us. Secondly, second lesson I learn is draw a line and don't step over it. I guarantee you that the sons of Seth, they didn't just randomly arrive and nod and start marrying beautiful women. It was a gradual process of becoming acquaintances, then friends, then marriage partners. The more time they spent together, the blurrier the lines became. Before you knew it, there was no more line. This is the problem at university campuses today. Kids go to college with clear boundaries and they walk straight into a wall of relativism, that everything is grey. And they can come back from university totally confused, make silly decisions, get pregnant before marriage. Some even come back with a different gender. Postmodernism says there are no lines. I'd like to just challenge you guys. Ladies and gentlemen, there are absolute truths. There are black and white lines. 
And we need to draw those lines and not step over it. God must determine where the line is drawn, not us. Once we have seen where God has drawn the line, we need to submit to it. Draw your line where God's line is. Thirdly, the last hope of the world is a distinct church. A church that doesn't draw lines will blend with the world and cease being God's people. Someone said to me the other day, other day, you know, we can't put God in a box. In other words, we can't limit him or draw lines for him. Yeah, and I, I get that and I agree with that. But God has put us in a box, ladies and gentlemen. We are in a box. The box is earth. We can't escape it. The box is our need for oxygen. We can't live without it. There's a moral box that surrounds us as people of God. Like, don't hate, no sex before marriage, no adultery, no lust, homosexuality is a sin, transgenderism is a psychological issue and not normal biology. We are in a box. Now, you can step outside of that box if you want to. But God has called us to be a distinct people. The moment we step out of the box, we cease being distinct. Then we are just like the world. And Genesis 6 teaches us, well, the whole Bible teaches us that we are a separate people, a distinct people, and God wants us to be the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be missed. Like Israel was to be the beacon of morality in the ancient world, so the church is to be the beacon of morality to the present world. And so I leave this final verse to all my brothers and sisters in Christ out there. First Peter 2 verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light.